Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of Encourage, Build, Grow, where we help you build better leaders, build better communicators, and ultimately create better people for design professionals. And we're excited today because I actually have on this podcast, and I promised you this early on when I talked about what I was going to do with this podcast here at Encourage, Build, Grow, I promised you I was going to bring some amazing people on the show, people that I've interacted with in the past. I've been involved in the design industry for over 22 years now, thanks to a good friend of mine named Mark Zweig, who hired me many moons ago, but that's neither here nor there. This guest that we have on the show today, Ozzie Nelson, is a good friend of mine and someone that we've interacted with over the years. And I've interviewed him on in a former life on a former podcast. And I said, you know, I got to bring Ozzy back on with this podcast, Encourage Bill Grow, because I think, well, first of all, I just get energized whenever I'm around Oz. If you know anything about this man, he doesn't let any grass grow under his feet. And he has essentially taken the design industry by storm in the way that he has been able to, and I won't say gobble up because that's not a good word. That's more of an all-encompassing, just fire and brimstone, go out and conquer everything. I would say that he's been able to cobble together and pull together some very different companies and create an organization that is just growing by leaps and bounds. And, and Ozzy is the co-CEO and chairman of Nelson and Nelson World. He's actually the chairman of Nelson Worldwide Holdings and the co-CEO along with Jim. Is it Jim Tipman? It is Jim Tipman. Okay. And, and in fact, Jim, uh, news as of the last two months, Jim has, after helping with the integration, has moved on to enjoy the rest of his life. So I am oh, uh, man. I, So I'm back to being sole CEO. Okay. But, uh, but Jim and I uh, stay in very frequent contact and it, and it's all good. He did a he did a great job for the last 18 months flying all over the country helping to get his former organization firmly integrated into ours. Yeah, no. I well, okay, that makes sense. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad to know that. I mean, you have I mean, Ozzy, first of all, thank you so much for coming on on the episode, on the podcast and, and joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I, and I'm very, first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm very fortunate that some of those amazing people that you talked about could make it because it created an opening here for me on your show. So <laughs> right. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, no, well, we're trying to line them up one by one, but we wanted to come out of the gate with some of the best of the best. And, you know, you have been involved with at this point in time, and, and I love you know, I would like just love for you to just to share your story with this audience. I like to call it a superhero origin story because we all have one and we all have a story to share. And sometimes people don't realize the humble beginnings that we all come from. But I mean, you know, it all starts with you and your dad and 15 employees. And, yes. and so it just, why don't you take it from there? I mean, you can start <laughs> But why don't we just start there? And I think people need to understand, you know, the the genesis of, of from when she came. I think it's a really great story. Sure. Well, thank you. Well, you know, what I would say is that I'll I'll share a little bit of my personal story. I think the bigger message is that I never would have, I certainly wouldn't have dreamed ending up where we are today. And, you know, when we were, you know, it showed up that first day, we were 15 people and Three other names were Nelson, so you know, actually, actually, twelve, twelve employees outside the family. You know, I, I really like to say that you know this isn't a story of going up in the ivory tower and coming up with some grand vision. It, it really is a story as it was thirty-five years ago, and as it is today. For me, one that is is really about opportunity, looking at opportunity 
broadly being very realistic about what it will take to uh, take advantage of opportunity, but just as importantly, being willing to recognize the things that are changing that represent threat. And so I think sometimes folks can be overly optimistic about what it takes to capitalize on opportunities. I think other times people can tend to want to deny the threats that are around them. And I think we've done a pretty good job of rising to the occasion when there were opportunities and just as importantly, you know, it's the, my, who moved my cheese, right? Who has the courage to return to the cheese table and not pound your fist and get frustrated that the cheese isn't there anymore, but to go find another, another table in the, in the maze as the story goes. So I guess there, if I think about our story, there are clearly a couple of defining moments. The first is, uh, so I did join my father's well, small interior design firm. I came with a business background. It, I would say that a couple of years into it, it seemed like the craziest thing I'd had ever done. You know, I was a guy that saw myself as a business guy in what was a boutique design industry. And quite frankly, as I sort of gave thought as to what I wanted to do with my life, I was pretty convinced that this was not a fit. One of the things that really started to change was that corporate America at that point, so this would have been... 1990 was starting to develop this philosophy around really sticking to their core competencies and interior design architecture were not was not their core competency so they began to outsource and the combination of my business background and the ability to understand what the corporate client wanted through not necessarily the individual project but through a platform of services on an ongoing basis became a good fit for me. And so we were very fortunate that Cigna Insurance became the first company to outsource to us. And I, I still remember we competed against 26 firms. We won. The, and the proposition was, we have 3 million square feet. We're not sure if we're going to do one project or hundreds of projects, but we want to pick one partner. And whoever that partner is, will do all of our work on a negotiated basis going forward. And so. I still remember the day that we told that we we were awarded this work. We went, we met with a team that was being outsourced. This the head of the department handed me this box, and in the box were all these folded up blueprints. And I said, "What? What is this?" And he says, "Well, these are the projects." So literally, we had we got projects by the bushel. Some of them half completed. Some of them, you know, in planning stages. But it was kind of a way we go. You know, put people on site, build. You know, take people that had technical design competence, but now put them in a position where they are replacing what used to be the intermediary between the internal or the, the, the end user client in corporate America and the design professional. And so with that, the Cigna opportunity grew. We added back in the day what was SmithKline Beecham uh, to our outsourced clients. And then a company by the name of Nations Bank came along and, and we provided, we built, there was, a, there was a gentleman that I had met a couple of years prior who wanted to build this occupancy database. And I, I think back, I think 1990, 91, we built probably the first occupancy database ever built, which meant that we found a way to create a bi-directional link between AutoCAD and the database, which meant we really became internal to Nations Bank as they would acquire other companies and try to figure out how to find the efficiencies. Fast forward, and the kind of dumb luck part of the story is that Nations Bank ended up getting acquired, or I'm sorry, the company that we were dealing with was MNC Financial. MNC Financial got acquired by Nations Bank. 
Nations Bank became Bank of America. So from 19, probably 92, 93 to the turn of the century, our services, you know, my business plan was really to wait till Labor Day. And that's when Bank of America would usually buy somebody. <laughs> and then we would get a call and, you know, we either get a call that they had bought Barnett down in Jacksonville, Florida, and I would pack a team that would go down and we would do, in all these mergers, we would do three things. We would survey, measure, document what they bought. We would put together a combined occupancy plan to help to reduce the overall real estate holdings after the acquisition. And then we would negotiate to get a pretty big share of those projects. So, And then when that was typically over, we were sort of Johnny in the spot that had uh, done all of these projects throughout these campuses. And they asked us to actually stay and go on site for them. So the business was growing because we were picking up the ongoing work of the places where we we did the integration. And then we were going on to the next integration, like Fleet or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch and so on. So for about 10 years, that was a we were we were growing at a 20% clip. I had no overhead because I really most of the business was in a couple, a handful of clients, a little marketing, sitting on site with clients, building this national capability. And then the guys from strategic sourcing entered the equation. And now the relationship changed. We were no longer dealing directly with corporate real estate. We were now dealing with a a middle man, middle woman in between who very clearly said to us, why are we dealing with you? You You're a $10, $12 million company and your competitors are 50, 60, $70 million companies. They have offices around the country. And the message was very clear that if we did not get scale, and if we didn't create a platform, no matter how good our service or relationship, we weren't going to be able to compete. And so there's a good example of facing that reality and not getting frustrated, as I think some can, to say, well, that's what I get after all this year of relationship. You know, life changes, and you got to be ready to change with it. So that was the first time that we really started to think about merger acquisition as a way to grow the firm. Number one, we had worked with a company like Bank of America, where we saw how they had gone from the sleepy bank in North Carolina to now one of the largest banks in the country through merger acquisition, how they were going into these geographic markets and just selecting the very best and overnight transforming their platform. So, you know, very inspired by all of that, we began to talk to small firms in different geographic markets. You know, this time we were 12 or 14 million in annual revenue. So I picked companies that were somewhere between two and three million. So that clearly we were creating a scale that was more significant than what they had. We had built the firm so that our backroom operations uh, could be very scalable. So as a two or three million dollar company would come on board, we could take over all of their accounting, all of their HR functions, so that the principals could really focus on the business of the business. And the third part of that was that I. You know, I think the, the approach was very innovative in that we said to these companies, look, we don't have a lot of cash. In fact, we don't have any cash to pay you, but the world is consolidating. You need to be part of a, a bigger platform. So let's do this. And what I did was I, I looked at their, their last three years of historic earning. I looked at their salaries. And so I said, you keep your salaries for three to five years. And the first amount of profit that comes out of this new entity, whether I generate it, you generate it, or walks in the door some other way, you get the first X amount equal to what you're earning today. So when they looked at that, you know, it was 
they really, in a lot of ways, had nothing to lose. They would get the national platform. They would have their salaries guaranteed. And in a small company, nobody has a guaranteed salary. Right. And they were going to have a better chance to get their bonus uh, and their current earnings and reach beyond that. And the, beyond that, the formula was, I won't do a deal where I don't have majority control. First deal actually was 51-49. And we were able, over time, to get to a point where the typical equity split in these uh, companies was 80-20. So Nelson, doesn't, Nelson takes over all these functions, doesn't get a dollar in return unless we can show you a dollar over where you've been historically. So, you know, again, I think of an interesting formula and an interesting approach to risk. I think uh, I look at risk differently than many people. You know, there are some who say, why would you risk taking on these companies if you don't get a return until a certain point? The risk I was facing is if I don't expand my business at the rate that I need to, I'm going to be in a world of hurt anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's about embracing risk in a way that you are comfortable, but also understanding that you will never be in a situation where there's no risk. So, anyhow, this formula took us from twelve or fourteen million to about fifty three million in about three and a half years. That's another another time that uh, I, I think there's a good life lesson, which is if you ever think you have figured it out. That is when God will show you that he has a great, a great surprise or a great sense of humor in store for you. So that was when the uh, epic downturn in uh, 2008. So now we've bought 13 companies. We've cobbled them together. We've created the network. And what happens? All of the business from all these uh, corporate entities starts to slow down. So you know, it, it, when I share the numbers, it never sounds as painful as it was, but it was extremely painful. Uh, we went from about 52 million in annual revenue to about 38 million, um, uh, and the problem was, well, the well, 12 million dollars was all, not all that much of a decline. Um, I I now had all these leases, I had all this fixed overhead that I had not had at the at the smaller size, so that was one of the reasons that it became challenging. And really, the only thing that we could cut was headcount, while we also tried to figure out how do we continue to deliver services in this national platform. So it was, uh, it was, um, it was a very, a very challenging time. And, uh, you know, coming out of it, um, I think uh, for me, and I think for other entrepreneurs, it probably, it, it took a couple of years to ever want to get back in the saddle and start to <laughs> think about growing again. We just wanted to breathe and survive. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but we did, we did start to grow again, and this time with a very different lens. Uh, this time, the lens was having seen how quickly the world could change and seeing that I had absolutely no purview into the changes that were coming. The only way that it made sense to go forward was to really try to diversify the business. And that's when I had the, I created these three concentric circles where I was looking to one, round out the platform and grow from a geographic standpoint. I was looking to add more disciplines like architecture or engineering to the firm. And then I was looking to expand market verticals to not just be in corporate work, but to build an organization that would do everything from retail to hospitality to healthcare. And that roadmap would serve us well. It's along those, uh, along that time that I had my, um, my epiphany conversation with Mark's like, 
And so I was uh, hell-bent on getting a, a certain geography filled in. Uh, I think it was actually the Bay Area. And I was wasting all this time talking with firms, you know, trying to find the right fit. And Mark said to me, well, you have an idea where you want to end up, right? You want this diversified firm that's in all these locations. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, does it really matter what order you do them in? Does it matter if you focus on the, the disciplines part as opposed to the geography part? You know, be, be a lot more open as to the opportunities that you embrace. And uh, those words uh, and that approach allowed us to go from 40 to 80 million in three years. Because now all of a sudden, I, I was looking at the pipeline of opportunities a completely different way. And we would, we, so we would use these three concentric circles to say, if there's, if a firm that wants to be acquired fits one of these circles, uh, we will talk to them. If they fill two, we're more interested. And if they fill three, that's the trifecta. So the, the more concentration of the circles, the better. And then I think the other thing that we really started to look at as the firm got larger and I had, I don't know, 20 or so merger acquisitions under my belt, I started to see that size, uh, what, what an incredible difference culture makes, a common culture. Mm-hmm. So culture, along with those concentric circles, would be the things that we would look at. So you know, from there, the acquisitions started to get more sizable. The Vidal Cave acquisition five years ago was a, a $12 million company that really introduced us to the whole idea of landlord services and tenant planning, 65% of the tenant planning market, the A&B buildings, today through maintaining what they had and, and adding to it with, uh, with organic growth and with another merger acquisition in that market. We control about 75% of the A&B buildings in Atlanta for tenant planning. Next uh, would come the Muffson merger in New York. That would give us a, a platform in New York in which was really vital for us with our corporate clients and and now would give us the opportunity to go in and work on hedge funds, private equity firms, all of the, the law firms, all of the local business that we didn't have before. And then uh, as you and I were talking about just before we got on the podcast, so January 9th of last year, simultaneously we acquired WB Wakefield Beasley out of Atlanta, a firm that was a click under 200 and primarily corn shell architecture. And then a firm by the name of FRCH out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, number three in consumer brands uh, in retail design as well as hospitality and excuse. So, you know, those two really rounded us out, brought us to 1,100 people. We are top five in most of the disciplines that we're in. Our goal over the next five years is to either be top, f- to be a combination of top five in any vertical that we compete, as well as top five in any geography that we enter. Well, that, that is certainly a recipe for success, but I think you, you, you mentioned a lot. You've mentioned a lot there, obviously, and I did ask, so I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because it's a great story and, I, and I, it's, it's not one that is easily mimicked. I think that firms that are listening to your experience, I mean, they're just firms out there that are looking to make one merger or acquisition, right? It's not, you've done it, what is ultimately 40 times, I think at this point, or yeah, I mean, that's a lot. So you've kind of written the book on it. So you've had your ups and downs, you've stubbed your toes, you've made mistakes, you've figured it out. 
I will say this, and I think this is the thing that has resonated with me the most about the trajectory and arc of your experience there with Nelson and everything that you've been able to do because you you work with amazing firms like Google and and other firms that, you know, household names that we all know about. And a lot of that has come because of your willingness to to embrace other types of organizations and to to try to get into industries, sometimes through the back door, if you will, by connecting with firms that open up and present new potential clients to you. But you shared something with me the last time that we spoke in a podcast format, and it's something that I've kind of, that's carried with me for some time because it's, it's an idea that hasn't always been fully embraced in the design industry, but one I think you've done really well with. But this whole idea of the Blue Ocean Strategy, and I know that was one of your big books that was, I mean, the original book came out in 2004, and then they followed up with the Blue Ocean Shift which is, uh, which is a, a follow-up book to that by, um, and I'm not going to butcher the names of the authors because um, <laughs> yeah, they, <are> <laughs> yeah, they are tough, but, and I'll put a link to the both books in the show notes. But I remember when you told me about that, I went and bought the book and I read it and I was, you know, it reminded me of, of how entrepreneurs can identify opportunities in, in, in less crowded areas and find ways to develop their whatever vertical, whatever business or industry that they're in and find ways to develop their organization without going up against so much competition. And you shared that with me and you've kind of used some of those principles as you've grown, Nelson. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that I'll talk a little bit about that more than I, you know, there's a couple of others. You know, I think when I was a younger man, I used to sort of regret that I wasn't born in a time when America was going through this broad expansion of the railroad being built and, you know, what it must have been like to live in those times and, and the amazing amount of opportunity. Can I ask um, you a quick question? Did you, see, yeah, absolutely. did you see the men who built America? Because it's almost like you're talking about that. No, I haven't. I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna write that down though. No, I have not yet seen it. I've I've okay. You need to see that. I mean, I've read Carnegie's. I've read some of Vanderbilt's biography. I've read Andrew Carnegie's biography. But the men who built America is the epitome of what you're discuss- what you're talking about with the robber barons and all these individuals that were you know they I mean they they took one risk after another. All this thing, all the things that J.P. Morgan did. And I mean, everything that Rockefeller did with Standard Oil, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see the arc of that. And there's actually a lot to be learned from what happened back then, even to what we're trying to do now in industry. And so, yes, but, but yes. I just, I wanted to mention that, but you have to check that out when you get it. Definitely will. It's called The Men Who Built America. I actually purchased it on iTunes, but it's, it's well worth it. There are like five or six episodes. And it goes in depth into the lives of Cornelius Vanderbilt and Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller. It's it's well worth the price of admission. So, but carry on. I'm sorry. Very cool. No, no, no. Very cool. So you know, I, I so if you think about you know, you go back to the Blue Ocean Strategy and you you think Blue Ocean Strategies in in so many ways is just not about following the pack. It's about you know that that temptation to follow the pack and to find either different destinations that are just as fulfilling and profitable or maybe more profitable or just a different way to get there. And I think if there's something that's satisfying for me today, it's that you know we have arrived at a place where we have built a very compelling 
creative design and architectural firm, but it is not how we, it was not our, you know, we did not do it the traditional way to get there. We, we used a lot of sort of business tactics of embracing things like occupancy planning, which created relationships with clients that got us closer to them so that we could sell directly what some of the capabilities that we had were. We, you know, we, we've taken, we've always taken a more, as much of a business approach as a creative approach. It was much more important to us as we've gone along to be known by our clients and by our peers. And then you get to this size and scale. And to some degree, you have to throw a switch because it is important to be known by your peers because that's where your people may come from. That's where someday when you come knocking on the door and want to acquire a peer, they see the value proposition of who you are. So I think we've we've ended up looking more traditional, but there has been a very untraditional road to get here, which which speaks to the to the to the idea of the blue ocean. I think the other piece there's a book by a guy by the name of Seth Godin. And uh, for those that are interested, he uh, he does a daily blog. He's a really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a he wrote a book called Tribes. Yeah. And uh, you know, Tribes is about the fact that you know anybody can be a leader. You know, we live in this time in which want to write a book, write a book, and get it published on the internet. Want to want to change the world? Figure out how you're going to create this campaign to create awareness and people behind you and find money and so you know. While I wanted to live bear at times, the reality is, like you know, when I look at the the genetic stock I come from, and you know, all of that, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I would have not had the opportunities that we have today. And so I think, you know, it is, it is, we live in many ways in the in the best of times and the worst of times. The transparency with which the world is operating in today, I think, is um, is sometimes disheartening. To and and has created sort of a a fractionalized world. On the other hand, the half, uh, the glass half full part of that is that it is a transparent world in which the best ideas, the most compelling visions really should be the ones that prevail. No, absolutely. You know, I want to ask you this because it's something that once you introduced the Blue Ocean strategy to me, I kind of took it and ran with it and shared it with a lot of folks in the design industry. And I would be curious to know, how have you figured out a way to try to cultivate that mindset or thinking with your people below you within your organization, right? Because, I mean, Ozzy can't do it all by himself. So how have you cultivated Uh, that thought process with your folks? I think, so I have just updated our three-year strategic vision. I I will bring that to my, I, I brought it to my executive team. I'll bring it to my board, get feedback, and I will release it. But it's, there's four very simple pillars in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And like, you know, one of them is we want to remain entrepreneurial. Yeah. So, and I think part of the way that you remain entrepreneurial is to just, is to not put a traditional label on what you do or how you do it to, you know, to think more broadly that, you know, if, if what we do is provide design services as one of, one of the things that we do, How's that going to change with artificial intelligence? How is that going to change in a global environment? How is that, you know, there's a, there's a book, and I always forget the name of the book, but there's a book I, I read like two years ago that talks about the fact that 80 million people in the United States will probably lose their jobs over the next 10 years because of automation. And the point was, if you look at what you do as the physical act of doing the work, 
as opposed to the intellectual properties that you bring to do your work and your interpersonal skills with your clients, mm-hmm. you are one of the people that will be unemployed. <laughs> so, you know, getting people to number one, you know, in our company, we talk a lot about bad news fast, putting the not being paralyzed and not being defeated by the challenge, but, but looking the challenge squarely in the eye and still being committed to finding a way to get to the outcome, even though you fully recognize there are challenges along the way. I encourage people to not put a traditional label on what we do as a firm. You know, we were having a conversation the other day with somebody who's relatively senior in the company, and we were exploring this idea of doing something with software, and kind of bristled at it and said, uh, we're a design firm. Design firms don't do that. And, and so it was a great teaching opportunity to say, first of all, part of what we are as a design firm, we are much, much broader than that. We're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, creative, advisory, consultancy firm, right? So think of us that way. And now the, the, the opportunities that you pursue you have to kind of stand on their own and then they have to stand as are they, are they accretive to the platform that we have? But you know, don't, don't dismiss an idea just because again, to the blue ocean strategy, other competitors don't do this sort of thing, or it may take some time to explain it to our customers or to the world that if we explain those things and make us different, well, that may be the thing that now we makes us great, but makes us different. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and, um, you know, what you just, that, that interaction that you had with one of your colleagues is kind of the interaction that we see on a regular basis in the design industry. I mean, it's still a a real old wineskin mindset, (laughs) wineskin thinking when it comes to that's not how we've always done things. So when you say something, it's almost heretical, you know, when you say it, because it's like, wait, no, that's not what we've done. It's like, there's no way. So and it's, uh, and I think there's so much, um, and I see it changing, but it's as much about being steeped in traditional approaches as it is an industry that has a lot of psychic compensation or being a certain, a certain somebody, you know, being an AIA or being a, a, a design director or a, you know, to some degree in a creative organization, everybody has a, Part of them, that's the design director, right? Everybody should be a steward of design. Everybody should take an interest in the health of the business. So everybody should be part CFO and CFO. And so, but it is, it is, you know, I, I, I think, and, it, and you said not all of the mergers have gone well. The handful that went really not well at all, number one, they were steeped in tradition. Mm-hmm. And number two, they never saw the change coming. And so the the bottom just dropped out. And when I looked at historic run rates for these firms to try to come up with a valuation, you know, what you can't value is the future. And usually past performance is a reasonable indicator of future performance. But in those cases where they're increasingly becoming irrelevant, the, the past performance was not at all an indicator of future performance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, just to also share with you, the one way that I have tried to interject this conversation of the blue ocean strategy into more design firms is I've done some leadership training in the recent past where one of the case studies we did was where I, I, a, I introduced the blue ocean 
strategy to people. And I was amazed at, at some really smart people, folks that just never heard of the idea. And when I explained and articulated the vision of it and the great thing about this book, and I know we're kind of talking about it ad nauseum, but it, it's really a worthwhile book for anybody listening to, <laughs> to pick up. But the example, one of the best examples that they use in the book is the difference between the old line circus, when you think of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, versus how Cirque du Soleil came in and totally upended the industry. I mean, transformed it. And they get into like, they get into the nuances of just the fact that when Ringling Brothers, when you think about when the circus would come to town, for those of you listening that are old enough to remember when the circus would come to town, it would come to venues that weren't necessarily always suited for what they did. And Circular Soleil said, well, why, why should we do it that way? We should create our own venue and then that, take that venue everywhere we go, which is why you have those really wonderful white tents whenever Cirque du Soleil goes out. I mean, they, they have like standard shows all around the world now that, that stay in one place, but they still have a traveling circus. And that traveling circus is self-contained. It carries everything with it. And it, it has so much more control over the end product that it delivers that it creates a level of consistency that Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey could have only wished for. And unfortunately, even though it was a childhood, great childhood memory of mine of seeing Gunther Gable Williams and all these amazing performers for Ringling Brothers, they are gone. They're no longer around. It's a memory now. And Cirque du Soleil is everywhere. And that to me, yes. that's the prime example. So I've used that and told that story in several leadership trainings that I've done where we've built a case study and we actually had people think about think about things that you do on a regular basis within within your job within your profession at your firm and the services that you offer within your vertical and think about ways that those could be delivered differently or better yet think about things that you've thought about doing but never t- taken it to leadership because you figured they would poo poo it away or say that's not we we don't do those kind of things and i think what you're saying and the example that you have set, Ozzy, is that it's okay to go against the grain of traditional thinking in the design industry space. And a lot of times, if you do that and you have some measure of control over how you approach things, you can find success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think there are, I think it's so important for people to not only imagine how life will continue to evolve, but to think in terms of paradigms. And I, um, I remember being on a plane one time and I read an article, this has got to be, I don't know, 15 years ago, but they, they, it was like the decision had been made that all, you know, that where to put apps, that the app technology was starting to become relevant. And the decision was made to put it in the phone because people always carry their phone. So now think, first of all, this was, this is so long ago, I think my phone was that gray brick flip phone, right? So the idea of an, of an app somehow being on this thing, that took a leap. But then once you knew that, if you were an app developer, all of a sudden you could start to think about what would the apps that people would need and what would the phone look like? And it would probably have a camera and all of these things now that gray brick flip phone it was hard to imagine. So if you can think this world in which the doing will become more and more automated, what are the consultative services? What are the analytical services that are not calculated, but more from human experience and interpreting and translating data more than the actual doing of work? I think we are 
embarking upon a whole new, what the industrial revolution was to us 150 years ago. I think we were embracing upon a time in which experiential living and this work world in which you are really, the greatest value goes uh, to those who can interpret, um, those who can connect, and those who can create a vision that then gets executed by these high-tech robots. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you said it perfectly, and, and it is something, I mean, that, that the, the experiential piece, the data revolution that we're experiencing, there's so much that we have to be willing to deal with. And a lot of people aren't ready for it, to be honest with you, Ozzy. They really aren't. I was watching um, The Great Hack on uh, Netflix last night, which mm. is, which is well, first of all, it's quite disturbing. But secondly, it's like, this is where we are. When you think about the 5,000 data points that uh, Cambridge Analytica had on so many people, but the simple fact was that they were able to leverage data because they didn't need to get everybody's data they just needed to get a few people's data. And then because people are connected, they were able to extrapolate out and through algorithms, figure out the rest of the pieces and kind of put the puzzle together. And so, you know, we are at a critical juncture, I think, in the world, period, and at this time. And I think you said it best. You said it on, on that video that I had a chance to watch that you delivered uh, to your university that you, you attended, St. Thomas, that, you know, you can't worry too much about the future. You have to focus on the now and where things yeah. are. And I'll, I'll make sure I put a link to that video in the show notes because I think people should watch that if you want to find out more about Ozzy and everything that he's doing. And, and I mean, he's only given us just an, an inkling of his achievements and, and just the difference that he has made to this industry. But I think you, you said it best. And then you used a quote, which I'll kind of end with as we kind of bring this to a close because... Um, this has just been great. But you said the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. And I know it's not your quote, but it is a really good quote to use. And then you said the next best time is today. So I think people need to recognize that we need to take advantage of what's right in front of us instead of worrying about what's going to happen down the line in the future. I, um, I got interviewed a few days ago by somebody from Autodesk Magazine, and they're doing this whole conversation about the gig economy and if it's going to happen in the, in the design industry. And I think it is. I think people are going to be able to hire individuals on a case-by-case basis. There'll be, there'll be young people coming out of school that will prefer to work for a little while and then go off and do something and then come back and work some more or maybe go to Paris and do the same work that they were doing in New York in Paris for a while. And they won't be confined or constricted to one organization. They'll be available to work for a wide variety of firms. And so, I mean, we're the change is coming. And I know it's uncomfortable at times, but I think people need to recognize that and see it for what it is. And I see it as an opportunity. I absolutely agree with you. In fact, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, if that's where the world is going, the right firms will adapt their operations and hiring practices to that. And the wrong firms will say, what the hell is wrong with people? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're either, you're either on the train or you miss the train. <laughs> you don't want to miss the train. Well, you, you certainly haven't missed the train, Ozzy. You, you have been the conductor, if, if I may use that, that, um, that description. But I really appreciate you just kind of taking time to give our audience just a glimpse of, of what you've been able to do in the past couple of decades, it's certainly been nothing short of uh, stellar. 
And even more than that, not just to say, oh, well, this, you know, it's the Aussie show, but I think it's people need to understand that, you know, you've, you've taken a lot of risks. You've surrounded yourself with a lot of great talent because this is not just you. I mean, you're doing this. No, it is of, not. You're doing this with a lot of other people. So, I mean. And, you, and, you know, I think that I would say that it's paradoxical in that the further you want to go, the more it's about uh, surrendering and collaboration and really being, you know, being able to realize that, you know, in a, it, as the world evolves and as your organization grows, you need smarter and smarter people around you, which means, you know, you better be prepared to collaborate more, to have less direct control. You know, it's, you know, everybody's, everybody sees this big crown, but, you know, the reality is if you want the big crown, stay 15 people and have control of, of this, you know, small organization. I think for those that, for those who are excited to take on the challenge and opportunity, it really requires that you continue to grow as a person and as a leader. Yeah. And like I always like to say, real leaders work themselves out of a job because all they're doing is developing other leaders that can come up behind and take over what they're doing so that they can move on and do something else. And when you're not developing leaders behind you that that can fill that role, then you will always be stuck in one place. So, you know, so I'll kind of leave it at that. But I agree more. Yeah. But Ozzy, thank you so much for, for taking time to be on, on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? By email. So that's uh, onelson at nelsonww.com. Okay. All right. So that's nelsonw. Is it just www.com or Nelson? W- yes, it is. Okay. NelsonWW.com. Okay, perfect. That's, and that stands for Nelson Worldwide. So Correct. Uh, yeah, perfect, perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes so that people can connect with you. And I'll share that video that I mentioned in the show notes, links to the books that we discussed. I'll also put a link to that show, The Men Who Built America, which is really great. And uh, yeah. I, I, I want to get your feedback once you've had a chance to watch that, because I think you'll really like it. So, so that'll be great. But I, I would say to you, what's next? I definitely will. And, and by the way, I- I would just say it is rare, by the way, for people, if people reach out to me, for me not to, not to respond. So uh, if people have questions about growth companies, uh, you know, whatever might be intriguing, I'm, I'm always, uh, it's all about paying it forward. No, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And that's why, that's the one thing I like about you is that you're even as incredibly busy as you are, you're always, even if I've sent you beautiful socks, you, you still get back to me right away. And, and, so- <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. And for those of you that don't know, Ozzy, Ozzy likes stylish socks, so, as do I. So we have that in common. But, uh, but no, he, he is the real deal, and, and I appreciate you taking time. And, and uh, I look forward to at some point in time having you come back on down the road. And maybe even I might I might even ask to interact with some of your folks because I, I think you have you have some really great people. I would love that. I heard about some really great people there at Nelson that are doing some great things. And as you expand, I think people need to hear more of your story through the lens of those people that are achieving the objectives that you've laid out for them. So, Yeah, no, I would, we, we have a, a very deep bench of people that are far more interesting than me. So I would, uh, I, I would love to talk about that. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll definitely do that in the future. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Okay. So there you have it, folks. That is another episode of Encourage, Build, Grow. Ozzie Nelson, he is the man. And as you can see, we we took a lot of time to unpack what he's doing, how he has done it, the blue ocean strategy, the blue ocean shift. 
I really would love to uh, get your feedback on this particular episode. If it's been helpful for you, we'd love to know what you're doing in this space. If you are doing mergers or acquisitions or anything along those lines, or just trying to continue to develop your people from a leadership and communication perspective, we'd like to hear from you. But this is the place where you can continue to grow, especially in the design industry. That's why we're called Encourage, Build, Grow. The idea here is that we're all on this journey together. One day at a time, we're trying to improve ourselves. So I appreciate you taking time out to listen to this podcast. Remember, you can share it with a friend and you can find us wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts and always on our website at encouragebuildgrow.com. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I will see you next week. Oh,